I'm Julie Holland. And I'm Nick Spacek. We're the hosts of The Carnage Report, a horror news podcast, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Every other Thursday, we bring you the latest news you can use on horror movies, casting, production, re-releases, trailers, and more. We also do a deep dive into a movie new to streaming or theaters, giving you our thoughts and opinions on whether you should check it out. Toss in recommendations for similar movies and a whole lot of commentary, and it's all the horror news you can use. The Carnage Report is on Twitter and Instagram at Report Carnage. Find us at cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy folks, my name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault Podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at VHSVaultPodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E. P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud Fast Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, that song was linked to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks on our fucking network. And I told him, I love this song. I want to use it. So that way people don't just listen to me talk. And he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were. You can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, off of their album Believes in You, you can get the 10 song. The 10 song LP is out. Uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. 
This episode is also brought to you by Severin Films. Severin Films specializes in Blu-rays and Blu-ray collections of some of the best forgotten cinema. Horror, foreign, exploitation, and shot-on-video movies with great collectible packaging and each disc jammed with extra features, commentaries, and behind-the-scenes features, including interviews with the cast and crews and so much more. Keep physical media alive by visiting www.severinfilms.com. That's www.severinfilms.com, and let them know your friend Michael at the Shameless Picture Show sent you. Discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and today I'm joined by Nick Spacek of The Carnage Report, a podcast that he has been hosting alongside Julie Holland for about, I believe, a year and a half, correct? Roughly, yeah. The Carnage Report is a bi-weekly show that covers all the news you can use on recent and upcoming horror. On top of that, Nick is also a freelance writer whose work has appeared in UK's Starburst magazine, and he's also the music editor for the Kansas City Pitch. And according to the bio that he sent me, he has been married for over 15 years, has three cats, and recently saw a moose in person for the first time. That's all true. Tell me about the moose. I've never seen a moose. <laughs> Neither had I. No, uh, my, my dad and I drove out at the end of June to Rocky Mountain National Park like this crazy like literally pick me up on a Tuesday drop me off on a Thursday we were gone for 56 hours um and did something like 1300 miles but as part of that we were in Rocky Mountain National Park and we're driving past this small lake big pond however you want to look at it and there's all these people standing around like with cameras and stuff and like what's going on and then this moose just comes up out of the water and my dad and I are like I've never seen a moose. Like <laughs> it's one of the it's it's like the first time I saw a buffalo. It's like these things are real. Yeah. They're huge. They and like a buffalo, they're immense. Like they're just massive creatures. Even like seeing it from, you know, 100 yards away, you can just tell how big this thing is. I'm supposed to be going to Alaska next year Ooh. and I'm hoping I'll get to see a moose or some creature that I've Never got a chance to see. Truthfully, I, I don't know much about Alaska, and I keep getting it confused with what I assume Antarctica is like. Because, <laughs> like, I just all I know about Alaska is what I've learned from the Simpsons movie, um, Thirty Days of Night, and I assume like this is this is not even like I assume the, the nook of the north. So I don't know much about Alaska, but I'm I'm hoping that I could also get to see a moose. I would, I mean, I would highly recommend it. It is um, one of those things where you're just like, oh, I've seen a bunch of animals. Like, I've done a lot of traveling. We've gone to a lot of nature things. I definitely once mis- thought I was seeing the most realistic, like, concrete deer in someone's front yard, only to have the deer, the concrete deer, then begin walking alongside our car. And and I, I feel like there's, there's something to be said about seeing them in the wild as well, because, like, 
I feel like I might have seen a moose at a zoo somewhere, but it didn't leave a big enough impression on me that I can actually remember if I've seen a moose. But, like, I've seen, like, elk at a deer, but I'm sure seeing it pop out of the water is a different experience altogether. Yeah, and, I mean, it's just sort of, like, the thing about Rocky Mountain National Park. Like, I haven't been in years, but just, like, being there for half a day, you're just kind of, like, walking around and, like, everything you put your eye on just, like smacks you in the face with like beauty and amazement and wonder and it's just like one of those things where you're just like well i i took a few pictures but for the most part i it's it's a waste of time like it can't capture a tenth yeah of what's in your what what's in your eyes like my my family is all from i i was born and raised in wisconsin but my dad's side of the family is all from virginia but not like just Virginia. Like they live up in the Appalachian Mountains part of Virginia. And that's the biggest thing I can say about going to visit there. It's like I've never been able to take a picture that I can do any of it justice. I feel the same way about certain parts of Wisconsin, honestly. Like when my wife and I have gone to like Devil's Lake and things like that, it's like we have pictures, but I'm just like it's beautiful. Like it's just like this pure – like this amazing lake that's just – it, words fail me, basically. Like it's one of my favorite places. I'm impressed that you've been to Wisconsin. <laughs> I've been to Wisconsin a lot. I've probably been like not counting the states that border Kansas. Wisconsin is probably the state to which I've been the most. What keeps bringing you back to Wisconsin? My, that's, that's, that's great. My wife's family uh, is all from a series of small towns along uh highway 92 in northern illinois so like 20 minutes from the wisconsin border so that's where she went for vacation all the time when she was a kid and so that's where we go on vacation um like we'll go visit her family and then it's just like well we gotta go get some nuclearis we gotta go like pop in and like see what we can do yeah, I have a friend who's um, – and listeners out there have not noticed, me and Nick have actually never spoken to each other. Like, we like we might have talked to each other a little bit on, like, the Discord server, but, like, I pretty much put out a call for arms for anyone who might want to be a guest when, funny enough, my co-host, also named Nick, had to take a leave of absence. So, like, this is the first time we've actually ever spoken to each other. Like, I've listened to your show, but that's about it. I mean, same. Like, but no, like, yeah, love Wisconsin. It's one of my – favorite places. yeah i have, I have a, a, a fellow podcaster he does a show called frightmares uh he's never been to wisconsin either so like i, I just the other day i was like telling him about the wisconsin state fair and like <laughs> i was sending him videos of like cow judging competitions and just like how seriously like the judges take it like there there's no sense of irony in their voice no matter what they're saying they're like this is a an adequately sized heifer and she's got strong legs this is going to be this is going to grow up to be a good cow i'm like everything you're saying sounds ridiculous but you're saying it with such earnestness that i don't think you, re- you realize how d- ridiculous this is so i'm sending him videos and then we get on obviously on the topic of cheese and like um anyone who spent a little time in wisconsin has, might have heard of uh, brick cheese it's made in a small little town called Therese, Wisconsin. It's made in a place called Wid- Widmer's Cheese Cellar, like where they legitimately make cheese in a basement. It's in and the basement it's like a of a spe- house, right? Yes, and it's like a specific. T- it's almost like a Colby Jack, almost like a cheddar, but it's it's not even like a Wisconsin cheese. It's this town's cheese. 
and I was telling them all about it, and I was like, you know what, fuck it, for Christmas, I'm gonna send you some, and now I'm trying to think, it's like, has he had summer sausage, do they have, uh, like, jolly good soda down there, I'm just trying to think, of like, what all these, like, Wisconsin things that I can send him. I have a jolly good soda t-shirt I wear to the liquor store, it's the, uh, Sour Power, uh, you know, old-fashioned floater, uh, shirt, my wife got me one uh, because I manage a liquor store as my day job. And, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with much of Wisconsin's bounty and wondrousness. <laughs> that just brings me so much joy. I usually, uh, I don't normally encounter that often. Or, like, the, the like, because Jolly Good's kind of a deep pull. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, like, 100%. Like, we... I want to say like it was in the midst of the pandemic. Like my wife found out you could just order soda by the case from them. And <laughs> I think we that's ended awesome. up with three cases. That's all. Like, what what is your flavor? Before I ask you about the Carnage Report, what's your flavor of choice for Jolly? I really do like the Sour Power. Like, uh, although I will okay. say the grape is a very close second. They have probably one of the best cream sodas as well. I'm not a if, huge if you're a fan of cream soda person. That's my thing. So. I will recognize that, it's good, but it cream soda is not my. That means yeah, that's a good point. If you don't like cream soda, it doesn't matter how good it is, you just won't like it. But in terms of the echelon of cream soda, they're definitely one of the better ones that I've had. So we are both on the Cinepunks Network. Mm-hmm. We are both new podcasts, and I only know that just because when we upload episodes, you're right below where I'm at. <laughs> so like, it's like oh, Carnage Report. They must have signed on ju- literally just after I did, or. Um, so tell me a little bit about the Carnage Report. Tell me about your, uh, how you and Julie Holland started it, and I just I want to know more about. It. Like I said, I've listened to a couple episodes, but I don't know your history. So the funny thing about the, the Carnage Report is it's not my first podcast. Uh, I still occasionally do this other podcast. It's called From and Inspired by, which is a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. But mm. that's a lot of work. Like it requires like writing scripts and editing audio and like doing all of this stuff to like put together each episode. And it took so much time to do it that it was like, and it was, there were discussions that it might end up at Cinepunks at some point. And then I just finally stopped doing it. Like literally sat on, I released four episodes earlier this year that had been sitting in one case for a year and a half. And uh, so that died and everything and I wasn't really doing any podcasting and then early last year I've been friends with Julie like casually like we have been I guess what could best be described as good acquaintances we've known each other for like 20-25 years <clears throat> and uh, she had posted on Twitter one evening like hey um, I really wish there was a podcast that talked about new horror. Like there's all these horror podcasts, but they always, they're always talking about like old stuff or, you know, uh, like double features or things like that. And somebody was like, well, why don't you do one? And she's like, I would need someone who has technical know-how. And I just dropped in and like, like a reply guy. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I can do that. And what started off is just like sort of her randomly putting something out there and me just being like, it ended up we got started and we came up with like an idea and a name and just we're like okay the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna do x like and Mm -hmm. i don't mean that like as a you know placeholder example like the first thing we did was like the biggest like horror theatrical release of last year and 
we just we cover stuff that's on streaming stuff that's come to festivals things like that we um you know we have like a feature every episode which is you know the film we talk about but like before that we have a similar to like what we just did it's uh it's called the setup which is where because we've known each other but we don't know each other well Mm -hmm. so the setup is like a getting to know you question that we do every episode and talk about you know like we ask each other that question and then see where that goes and learn things about each other and um then we go into we cover trailers and things that are coming out and like movie news and all of that and just uh have an absolute blast we have a there's a recurring but irregular feature uh called the gate where we talk to horror creators about like what got them into horror but Mm -hmm. um that's not like something it's just kind of like oh we have this opportunity let's talk to this director this actor yeah and uh yeah no it's fun like it's an excuse for both of us we each have spouses who like horror but are not horror people the way we Mm -hmm. are so it's nice to have that like where we can just like nerd out about shit for like a solid you know couple hours like every other week and also just like message back and forth online and talk about like oh this is coming out have you seen this oh should we talk about this or oh can you believe you know like it's just fun to make a new friend in your 40s yeah (laughs) like that's like i think half of it like we do it like we've spent between the two of us like not inconsiderable amounts of money getting like stickers and buttons and stuff yeah and hit us up online if you want one we'll send them to you for free um i do love your logo i might have to do that but yeah like i mean like that's the thing it's just like it's fun it's and it it forces us to like occasionally watch stuff that we're just like i don't know if i really want to watch that but this would be really fun to talk about it's interesting. You, your show and my show kind of have a similar history in in some ways. Where, so my show started. So this was not my first podcast either. I used to do a podcast uh, called the No Homers Podcast, which was a Simpsons podcast, and uh, it didn't last very long because we were being too in our own heads about it. Where instead of just doing the logical thing and going like episode to episode, we thought let's choose themes and then pick episodes <laughs> based on these themes we maybe got four or five episodes in and then two of them got lost so i think we only re- ended up releasing three episodes um and then my now uh, like I, I i say former co-host but he's on hiatus i you know i'd like to think he's gonna come back but we don't know for sure but nick who i did, who created the show with uh he was like our one sole patreon person back when we <laughs> when we had it and I met him at a film festival because I'm a, I'm a filmmaker um, a little bit. And we hit it off. And just since he lives in Maryland, but he's from Wisconsin, we just – sometimes it's just hard to find an excuse to, to talk with someone. Not because you don't want to. just It just – it's hard to find time. So, like, I, I when I decided I wanted to do uh, a different podcast, he was the first person because I just wanted an excuse to hang out with him more. Uh, like it was kind of very similar to how you and um, Julie were, were your acquaintances, but doing the show brought you closer together. And also, since the theme of our show is to watch things that we haven't seen yet, um, it gave me an excuse to like finally check out some of these big films that I kept putting off. Um, but you touched on something 
about the Carnage Report that I really appreciate, and the reason I enjoy listening to your show, is you touch on new horror. Because one thing that I feel like every horror podcast that's out there is usually touching on the past, because there's so much out there. And with my show, we're not specifically horror, we just kind of do whatever. Um... I know with myself, it's sometimes hard to keep up with what's new because I have to spend so much time looking back and doing research that new things just miss me, like just pass by me. So what I've enjoyed about listening to your show is I'm turned on to things that I didn't know about or wouldn't have heard about. Like I'm listening to your shark exploitation episode right now, <laughs> and uh, you talked about something in the in the trailer. I don't remember which film it was, but there was a film that you're talking about in the trailers that. Uh, it had um, Michael Sarah. I think it was that Steven Soderbergh TV oh, yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like I would never even heard about that if it wasn't for your show. And what I think is so beautiful about the concept of your show is there's a. This is going to be me getting on my little like soapbox <laughs> thing for a moment. There's a really bad trend in film culture right now, and even more so in in the the horror world, where there's just a lot. There's a lot of people out there who just assume that. If it was made any time in the in recently, it automatically is bad. Uh, you know, I, fe- I feel like for a lot of horror fans out there, not all, because I have some really um, uh, uh, good friends who are supportive of so many different types of horror. But you know, I think we're uh, I, I'm sure any horror fan has been on a couple horror groups where it's like if it came out um, like after any time after the '80s, they don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> And what's funny is a lot of those people are also the same people who are like, if it came out before like the sixties, they also don't want anything to do with it. And Mm -hmm. there's so much, there's so much that's been released since the nineties and like before like that golden age, I think of horror that people ignore. Um, Like I love like delving in and finding like weird obscurity, like black and white obscurities but mm-hmm. also, like, the the reason I really love doing the Carnage Report is because it forces me every two weeks to s- take time to watch a movie, to pay attention to it, and also, f- like, f- make time to, like, have fun and watch something. And occasionally, yeah. we have picked stuff just because we're like, why the hell not? Like, one of our favorite movies uh, from there, like... I think it was our fourth episode is a movie called crabs with an exclamation point <laughs> that is supremely dumb, but also just, it has so much joy and it's so fun that like legitimately, like we both were just like, can you believe how like it's not good in the traditional sense, but it's just like everybody's having like everybody making it was obviously having fun like they don't take it seriously they put but they 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 don't take the idea seriously but they take the art of making that film seriously mm-hmm. like they put work into it it's not slapdash there are ju- there are some great jokes and they just lean into the fact that like this is weird and cheap and it's legitimately one of those movies that I probably wouldn't have watched except for the podcast and now kind of evangelize. It's one of the weird ones that I'm like, okay, it sounds dumb, but hear me out. Yeah. 
And and that's actually one thing I like about doing this show too. It's because same way, like I'm a bi monthly show as well. And actually, at the point where we're recording now, I'm so far ahead of recording episodes. I'm finally releasing episodes I recorded like a month to a month and a half ago. So this will come out eventually. <laughs> um, but it's the same because like sometimes you know, especially after a long day of work, you just want to. Sometimes you just want to come home and not think about what you're watching. But then I, I found myself for a while, I was just kind of falling into, like, the same cycle of, like, comedy or light horror or what have you. So sometimes it's fun just to kind of knowing that, same way as you, like, every every other week or twice a month or however I decide to do it, I need to put something on that sometimes engages me. You know, like that with the movie that we're talking about today. It's not that I never, I didn't want to see um, a face in the crowd. It's just sometimes you're just not mentally. It's it's you're not mentally ready to sit down and watch something that could be more dense than you're expecting. But then we've also done things like your Hunter from the Future on this show. So like <laughs> it's all over the place. Um, and like I said, I've been I've been get, getting a lot of joy out of discovering things, new things from the Carnage Report. And I also like, I, I say this as someone who can't follow this rule myself, I like that your episodes are short. You know. Oh, we try to keep them at an hour. I tried doing that for a little while, but uh, I realized that sometimes this conversation is going to just go where it needs to go. And I've had 40-minute episodes of this show where just, there wasn't whole much, a whole, whole lot to talk about. And then I have my three-hour episode on Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> You know, it's I, my rule is wherever the conversation goes, is where it goes. Um, so, like I said, I'm I like the Carnage Report, and I think other people will like it too. Um, you're on the Cinepunks Network along with the the show people are listening to right now, the Shameless Picture Show. Is there anywhere else that people can find it and just kind of plug it a little bit before we get to the topic at hand? It's on all the streaming services via Cinepunks, and you can find us on Instagram. And uh, Twitter slash X at Report Carnage. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much where it lives. Like, we don't have a website or Facebook page or any of that stuff. Um, well, technically, you do. The Cinepunks website right. is your website. But, like, I mean, we, it, we don't have like a cinema smorgasbord style, like, yeah. standalone website. Perfect. And like I said, I think everyone should check it out. I, I, I like it quite a bit. And um, as, as, as I keep saying, it's just a great way to – if you're like me and you love horror but sometimes find it overwhelming with how much new stuff is coming out, it's kind of nice to have two people who are diehard horror fans kind of holding your hand throughout it and being like, this is what looks good. This is what seems interesting. And especially because – we, there's not a lot of horror curation and there's um sorry if you hear banging it's because my wife's painting i think she's closing <laughs> up the paint cans um i've been hearing you know down the rumor mill that things aren't necessarily looking good for for something like shutter which is kind of where i found a lot of newer mm-hmm. horror so it's nice to have tastemakers out there pointing in the right direction we try um, so, on today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, we're crossing something off of my shame list, a film that, back in 2008, was added to the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. In the late 1950s, it's, oh, sorry, it's the late, 
late 1950s and were in the rural south. Marsha Jeffries, a radio personality and host of the show, A Face in the Crowd, goes to a local Arkansas drunk tank to find an interesting personality to profile. Most aren't willing to talk, but one guy is. Larry Rhodes. He's got a guitar, a powerful voice, and the gift of gab. In the span of a radio program, Marsha sees that he's something special and dubs him Lonesome Rhodes. After the popularity of his brief appearance, he was offered the opportunity to host his own radio program, which eventually leads to television and much more. Lonesome has a way with words. He's a master of faking sincerity and telling people what they want to hear. He can make an audience eat out of his hand and do whatever he wants. He's a man of influence, and when Lonesome starts dabbling in politics, the monster that Marsha created starts to become more than anyone can handle. The film, originally titled The Arkansas Traveler, was written by Bud Schulberg and is based on a short story of the same name. This is not the first time Schulberg and Kazan have worked together, as Schulberg had also written Kazan's uh, film On the Waterfront. While the film had been well-received by critics, it wasn't a box office success upon release. However, the film has been reappraised and now is considered to be one of Kazan's very best films for its strong editing, confident direction, and an and unhinged lead performance by newcomer Andy Griffith. The film was written by Bud Schulberg with cinematography by Gain Reschner and Harry Stradling, editing by Gene Milford, and music by Tom Glazer, starring Andy Griffith, uh, Patricia Neal, Anthony Franchosa... I'm probably mispronouncing that. And Walter Matthau as Mel Miller. From 1957, directed by Ilya Kazan, this is A Face in the Crowd. Look out for him. He's mean. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Griffith, another sensational newcomer from Ilya Kazan, who brought you Marlon Brando and James Dean and Carol Baker. by millions, an idol of the people. Bye! Bye, Lucy! So long, Luther, you're right to me now. I'll be thinking of you, good people. Boy, I'm glad to shake that dumb. Look, don't, don't try to play the noble defender of the sanctity of marriage with me, Papa Man. You know where you've been some of those nights when Betty was waiting up for you. You know, you hit me and it'll be all over the papers as much as the people love you tonight. You're can fired. You. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force. A force. Oh, if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. But they're even more stupid than I am. <laughs> so I gotta think for them. One of the greatest characterizations ever put on the screen in the whole history of motion pictures. Maybe I'm just a country boy. <laughs> but if the president tries to stop me, I'll flood the White House with millions of telegrams. <laughs> I established very early on that early on in the show, I decided I'm I could never find descriptions that I liked <laughs> enough 
that gave historical context and all this other stuff. So I started doing it early on, and sometimes it is the biggest headache <laughs> to try to like sum everything up and give people a good starting point. Like I wrote that like right before we started. Podcasting. That's that's why I stopped doing from an inspired by on the regular because I had to do that for every episode. So, a face in the crowd. When I sent out the list of films that I wanted to talk about this season, um, this was one of the two films that you chose that you wanted to be part of. Was this a first-time watch for you, or what drew you to this film? Oh, no. This is not the first time I've seen it. You know, the funny thing is, is I can't remember when I first saw this, and I'm willing to bet it was probably when i was going to college um and i was in my uh you know i think anybody who's like a movie fan especially like when they're in college gets into like their i'm going to watch cinema or (laughs) or at the very least like you start there you start finding all those lists of like movies you should see right like you know thousand and one movies to see before you die and stuff i got like a bunch of them on this because i love those list books so no matter how repetitive they are i I buy a lot of them. Yeah, so it was, like, when I was in college, like, I happened, my dorm, like, that I lived in for, like, the first three years, like, conveniently had a, it was a store called Hastings, which was, like, it's a chain that no longer exists. It went out of business, like, four or five years ago. But it was right down the hill from where my dorm was. So, like, even before I had a vehicle or whatever, or even after having a vehicle, it's just, like, a hop, skip, and a jump, go down there and rent movies, and, like, would spend... You know, if I had a weekend with no projects or anything like that, I would just, like, go down and rent a ton of movies and, like, watch all of the movies you hear talked about. Like, that's how I saw, saw like, um, The Town That Dreaded Sundown because they name drop it and scream, right? Mm -hmm. So I watched, like, all of these movies because it had a – because it was a video store in a college town – it had a lot of weird stuff you probably wouldn't have found at your standard sort of place. And I'm sure a face in the crowd was part of that because like you, especially like if you are, I think our age or nearabouts, you grow up with Andy Griffith as Sheriff Andy Taylor or yes. Matlock. The, Mm-hmm. depending um or both because or you know angel in your pocket or any of those other like like andy taylor adjacent films that he did right like i mean like you grow up with him being matlock is on tv while like andy griffith shows are on tv in reruns so like, you get used to him as being like this kindly guy and everything and then you hear about it, it's like oh have you ever seen andy griffith's like first like movie and it's like i've never seen a time for Sar- no time for sergeants which is like kind of mm-hmm. like technically a stage play that got adapted into a movie and got him and don knots big but this was the one where i was like what do you wait wait you mean andy griffith plays like like an unhinged like kind of psychopath asshole i want to see that yes and i mean like that's like if it's a great in like it's like if you want to see somebody play against type in a way that you would never ever expect like this is i mean short of like tom hanks deciding at this point in his career to play a serial killer Mm -hmm. like this is i think the 
the platonic ideal of playing against type, although it was before he had a type, which I yeah. think is so and funny. The early part of his career is interesting because, like, like you said, I grew up with Andy Griffith on the television, um, you know, uh, the Andy Griffith show and Matt Locke and, and things like that. And I, this sounds um, meaner than I intended to. I never considered Andy Griffith an actor. Because, mm-hmm. like, I just, he, I, he, anything I saw him in, for the most part, he was just playing a variation of what I knew to be the Andy Griffith shtick. You know, it's kind of like when you, once again, you mentioned Tom Hanks. Though I think uh, in a lot of ways, Tom Hanks is playing a variation of Tom Hanks in so many roles nowadays where, you know, I feel like Tom Hanks can just wake up and do a performance. Um, and I never thought of Andy Griffith as an actor. And then, like, doing some research onto it on his on his past, like, he was, you know, he... Like I, I guess he one considered him to be a comedian, but he more so just did like monologues on stage, mm-hmm. um, whatever the term for that is. But I guess comedian is the closest adjacent thing that I can think of, and that's what got him noticed to be in No Time for Sergeants. And it's like I think he had done some like a couple small stage plays and things like that, but for the for him to be as relatively green as he was when he got the job on this film, it is astounding how natural he is. It is. I think I'm less surprised now, like knowing his history and also having like, I think it was very shortly after seeing it for the first time that I found like a cheap, like thrift store copy of the, the, monologue the the bit that made him famous in the first place which is called what it was was football um which is him being this sort of like corn-fed hick going to a college town and finding like describing all of the stuff that's going on which is kind of funny it's like a very charming sort of version of what lonesome roads would end up doing mm-hmm. and you can really see like why they picked him because in this movie, like him telling these stories, they don't seem like they're scripted. They seem like it's just they put Andy Griffith up there and just like let him run. Mm-hmm. And like you think like, it feels very improvised. And it's not unless you go and read um, your Arkansas Traveler, like the original story, and you find out like how much from this, like long-ish short story like they took to put in the movie like up to and including like you know like a lot of the scenes and lines like pop up throughout the film and um thanks archive.org um (laughs) it wasn't until i like i finally read it for the first time like a couple weeks ago um when i tracked it down and it's just like it's amazing to see like how much of that short story like makes its way on screen because it doesn't feel like it's like his stuff doesn't feel scripted. It feels like very, um, you know, like, uh, Ryan Reynolds, the, you know, like Deadpool type stuff where it's just like, it feels like he's just riffing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch because when I was in film school, I had a, a friend of mine who, um, told me that he didn't 
he he doesn't have this opinion anymore. But he told me that he always kind of struggled sometimes with older movies, especially from the fifties, because sometimes the acting is just sometimes kind of big and doesn't necessarily feel like a performance is the way he described it. But then you see something like this, and there's plenty of other examples as well, but you see something like this, and like you said, it doesn't even feel like he's acting. It just kind of feels like they found this guy <laughs> in a drunk tank and be and oh, like, you want to be in a movie? And just, and that like, it's such a fully formed and flushed out character. Um, you know everything from his kind of like bluesy country music that he that he's playing, and the cadence is like it sounds like Andy Griffith, but it sounds like a sleazy Andy Griffith. <laughs> just the cadences and the way that he moves his body is just so different than anything that I've seen him do before. And I almost I wish I there was I, I'm sure there's other great performances out there by Andy Griffith. Don't get me wrong, but I oh I. I wish he would have done some more stuff like this that has just a little more of an edge to it because I believe I remember reading somewhere that this movie is kind of what led to him doing the Andy Griffith show because he he didn't necessarily like playing this type of character. I mean, that makes total sense. I think the the best way you can like sort of sum up his character is if like you take the 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 artwork they did for the criterion collection version of this yes like the like the hunched manic like just finger pointy stuff like that's 100 percent like his character in this movie it's just like summed up in one image like because like as it goes along like he goes from being like this sort of like laid back and he just slowly folds in on himself becoming almost more like villainous in his like moving around like sort of in the Vitajek scene is I think where you just really see him just like there's a gleam in his eye in that scene that is just like they shoot him like a villain like they're not shooting yeah. him like he's the protagonist of the story they're shooting no. him like he's the antagonist like he's the bad guy and he is the bad guy of this story it's almost like kind of like what they did with joker mm-hmm. or like taxi driver or something like this just way before that where you're just like i i don't know how to feel about this guy and then just the way that they unpeel that onion as the movie goes on and how they just kind of trickle in so it's 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 one thing that when we meet him you know he's he's in the drunk tank and so it's like it's a pretty petty crime you know he's in jail for something relatively stupid you're he was probably drunk and disorderly and that's why he's in jail it's nothing violent it's nothing crazy like that um and he seems so opposed to doing anything with show business. Uh, but then when he finds out how good at it he is. But like there's the, the scene that just stuck with me. And, and I was like, oh, I, I now get, get an idea of what this character is. Is when he leaves Arkansas to go to New York. And he has this big farewell. And he's saying goodbye to everyone. And as soon as like he gets onto the train, he's like, oh, I don't remember his exact line. But it was something along the lines of, uh, well, I'm glad that's over. Yeah. And uh, and and uh, Marsha's like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I'm just I'm just playing. Like he he realized he can't let his guard down completely yet. He's just really good at telling people what they want to hear. Because his first monologue on 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 the radio when he's appealing to the housewives. Oh God, it's so good. 
Yeah. And then, like, just little things, too. And he's like, um, you know, like when uh, the, the orange juice from when you're, you know, uh, uh, baking a ham spills over the edge. And the woman goes, like, how does he know about that? You, you, and for a little bit, you want to feel like, oh, maybe he's not such a bad guy. Maybe he, he, he's just, he's an outspoken guy, but he has, he cares about the common man. No, he does. No, no, he does not. It's one of those things, like, as the movie goes along, like, they, it almost seems like the, when he's on screen, like it starts out like he's it's it's a wide shot and you see him moving around and he's all lanky and like as the film goes along like it just gets tighter and tighter on his like upper body and face to where you're essentially like it's like a zoom thing where it's like you can just see hands and face and just like his eyes like his uh, like the work Andy Griffith does with like his just like his eyes and like moving them around and like focusing on things and you just see him like he does so much with just that sliver of his face that it's just it's it's amazing like this is a movie you it's a pleasure to look at as much mm-hmm. as it is to watch i guess yeah and it's you it, he makes me so uncomfortable with his large smile like his, it's all i just think about is like just teeth yep, just teeth just teeth cuz like he's just um this he's constantly just crazy smiling and laughing and um and the simple fact that like he is able to take something as stupid as Vitajex, which they essentially admit does nothing and makes it into something that sells really well and he essentially it was supposed to be an energy pill and he makes it into like a male enhancement Mm-hmm. drug and gets it on television and has the, that entire Vitajex section the editing in that section like when we're essentially watching a commercial on the air of of this fucking stupid product it's that is i mean like that's obviously like that is his rise like that is yeah it's so great seeing him go from being like on TV in Memphis where he's just like kind of slumped sitting in front of the mattress just being like I just wanted to sell some mattresses folks and mm-hmm. to like all of a sudden like these big you know Madison Avenue productions <laughs> and like that is like the point in the movie where like as much as um like Andy Griffith is the focus of this movie um Patricia Neal as Marsha Jeffries. Oh, like she's so good in this. It's so like what I kind of love about this movie. Well, don't love about it, but like what makes it so effective is like you see like his his rise and her decline. Like they just intersect, and like that's the part where he's going, where her down. Like they intersect. You know what I mean? Like where mm-hmm. his rise meets her fall like because at the beginning of the movie like she's so energetic and just like hey folks and like and just she just like he gets way more up as the film goes along and she gets way more down and it's just it's so sad because she's so like patricia patricia neal is amazing like i mean her 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 performance like it's 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 a very different type of performance than andy griffith's 
uh, but they complement each other so well. And like you said at the beginning, when they first, when she first comes to the drunk tank and she's you know kind of like you know spunky and and having fun with it. And then I just I think about that scene later on when she's talking to Walter Matthau's character, which Walter Matthau in this movie. Oh God, his fucking speech that he gives at the end. Lonesome at the end. Oh. Gave me goosebumps. Um, but when she... I remember um, there's a scene later on where her and um, Walter Matthau meet at each other at a bar. And they, they've kind of had this, you know, will-they-won't-they type friendship. Um, but she's so attached to Lonesome that they know it's never going to happen. Um, and she says to him, it's, uh, you know, I think he says to her, it's like, why are you still with him? And she's like, you know what? I've gotten him to clean up his act a little bit. He watches what he says more. It's like she just feels so defeated. Like she has to. Exp- it's like it's like in a it's like a, a, a someone in an abusive relationship where they have to come up with these excuses about why they continue to stand next to this person that they don't want to admit is terrible. Yeah, like literally. And how how terrible is he that like he promises that he's going down to Juarez to get this marriage taken care of so that he can marry her and does go to Juarez but comes back having married a 17 year old drum majorette yeah um uh played by Lee Remick like or or he's just you know so such a shitty person that anytime that she tries to pull away he threatens to lob like throw himself off a building yep it's uh it's one hundred percent like all of the stuff that is in this movie I think that we're we're talking about is like the reason why like rewatching it, my wife had never seen it, and so she's uh doing stuff um in, in, in the kitchen just off our living room while I'm watching this. And so she's she's watching it with me and she's just like, This movie's kinda depressing because it's you know, it's over sixty five years old. And it is still like it's just vibrantly relevant. Well, like it yeah, doesn't it, it, feel old. No, it doesn't. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the movie Giant with uh, mm. James Dean. Like just kind of like that rise and fall to power. But then, like I'm, I'm, I'm confident. I'm not the. I will not be the only one to make this comparison. But just you know, having just been a couple years removed from the Trump administration. It's like this feels like oh shit. This is feels very akin to him and his fan base. And it's I mean it's wild. Like you've got like literally people like, even when Lonesome is just in Memphis, like he's still inspiring people to like set things on fire in the streets. Um, yeah, like they're 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 practically about to burn down that <sighs> mattress place just because they pulled their sponsorship. Or, like, granted, it's a small petty thing, but he gets, you know, all the townspeople to bring their dogs to the sheriff's house. And, like, he's one of those, he's very much one of those people that he doesn't realize at first how powerful his words are. But then he does realize and he just doesn't care. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I want to say, like, part of the reason I originally saw this movie was because Patricia Neal um, is in um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um which is like one of my used to be my hangover movie. Like that would be the movie I'd watch on a Sunday morning because it's like, it's entertaining and it holds my interest, but it's low key enough to where it doesn't make me like feel like I have to like close my eyes. Um, and I was like, Oh, she's in this movie too. Okay. Well that's a like tick in its favor. And then 
like this movie has like I would watch it more, but it is it's it's intense. Like it's just yeah. such an intense two hours. Like and you're riveted the entire time. Yeah. Like that's and it does not feel two hours uh-uh. at all. It is a yeah. it is a movie that I I think like I would really appreciate it, like if they'd show it in more film classes and things like that. Like just for like or just like this should be a movie that like it, I wish it were more readily available like on streaming services and things like that because this is exactly the sort of movie to show to somebody who is just like well I don't like black and white movies I don't like movies that are old because it doesn't like they just seem so dated and it's like this mm-hmm. it doesn't seem dated at all no no not at all and especially if whoever you're showing it to has any connection or even knowledge of who andy griffith griffith is it just hits that much harder at least it, it did for me because that i think that's the whole reason i even heard about this film was i just knew uh i think the only thing i knew about this movie when i first heard someone talk about it was they were like oh it's got a uh, it's it's a political movie uh starring andy griffith where he he's um I think they may even just describe him as a villain. I'm like, oh, that's – and I have in my mind like what an Andy Griffith villain it is, is and it was not this performance at all. Um, and like that's the reason I wanted to uh, attack, tackle this because especially as over the last couple years. So I'm weird when I – when there's a filmmaker that I find that I really like, I'm not one to – rush through their filmography because i like having gems to discover john carpenter is my favorite filmmaker of all time and i've still not seen all of his movies because i just (laughs) like keeping a couple of them pushed back just so i always have a new john carpenter movie but um do you remember um before the criterion channels thing there was a i think it was called filmstruck that they Mm -hmm. had beforehand and i loved filmstruck and i actually uh, still to this day kind of prefer it over the Criterion channel because we're having that turn to classic movies influence and having those like intro and outro buffers really or bumpers really helped but that's when I actually started discovering more of Ilya Kazan's work and I've loved every movie that I've seen that he's made and like I just and that's I think ultimately when I decided that I needed to see this movie that like i love i've only seen a handful of his but i've seen east of eden i've seen on the waterfront i've seen the streetcar named desire and i was like okay Ilya kazan knowing the way that he works with actors and the caliber of actors that he works with working with andy griffith that's eventually was like okay i have to do this this episode this season and then to like it's, it's it's even more surprising too that he just kept making films with such a political charge with everything that he was going going on with him and Hewak at the time or a little before this. You almost would have thought that it would have beat him down to the point that he'd just make direct, but he just kept making interesting work. What I find absolutely sort of like hilarious as an aside, since you brought up Hewak, um, is the fact that like I want to say. Ilya Kazan and like a buddy of his had a deal where like they would both uh like name names like mm-hmm. the, the the two of them would each name each other <laughs> but here's the other thing like Bud Schulberg also named names but he did it like purely because he was pissed off at the communist party because they kept trying to make him change his stories 
That's well, the like, pettiest, shittiest thing yeah, I've ever it's... heard, but it's so funny. Whenever to this day, whenever I think of like HUAC and the Communist Party at that time period, I just I I, I um I think of the Coen Brothers movie Hail Caesar, and they're all just sitting around having like really deep, thoughtful discussions. Like that's just <laughs> what I picture in my head. But like Eli Kazan, he even said like he uh, so he originally refused to, to name names. And then they just kept uh, pressuring him and 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 pushing on him uh, to the then point that he came back and did name names. And he claims that he did it because uh, he's like he said he said I didn't give them any names they didn't already have. So that was the way he justified it in his own head that all the names that he gave them were people that they already had on a list from other people that he claims he gave them. No one knew. But we, still, because he went, you know, he did name names. He's a controversial figure. Mm-hmm. Like even when they gave, when he had, a, they gave him his honorary Oscar at the ninety, at the, the in, I think it was ninety nine. Some people refused to stand and applaud him. Oh, there was a like a protest outside, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Like there was like a picket line. So that's why I'm surprised that he still continued to make movies, and pretty. High profile movie, like Facing the Crowd, it wasn't a huge film for him, at least not in terms of box office success, but it was a Warner Brothers movie. Um, and you know, Splendor in the Grass, that was still like that was like one of one of Warren Beatty's first films, so like he was still doing stuff, yeah. Oh, god, yeah, like I mean, like that's you, you have uh, like splinter in the grass is obviously like very like sort of important where i live because um it's obviously set in kansas but it's also written by william ing who like there is like at the university that is like 10 minutes from my house there is the william ing theater um so like because he was a kansas playwright uh who grew up not too far from lawrence um so yeah like big deal stuff like even in that was you know four years after this i mean mm-hmm. like obviously like his uh like post 50 like really post like mid 60s like his stuff drops off considerably but like he has like such like and interestingly such a literary like uh oeuvre i guess for lack of a better mm-hmm. term i mean like because i mean he did streetcar named desire he did a tree grows in Brooklyn. Like he did the movie we're talking about. He did Splendor in the Grass. Like a lot of things are based on either stories or novels or plays, and it just seems like he had like a real eye for like making these films out of things that could have been very two dimensional. Like kind of going back to like what you were talking about. Like the appeal of this movie is that it doesn't have that feel that a lot of some older films have where it just you feel like it it is people who are used to you know acting for like the back of the theater like yeah these are actual like they're films they're not just like a well, documentation of like people acting in front of a camera and then like for me it's like what, what it's crazy to me so I say this is someone who absolutely loves this movie, but I'm just going to pick on it anyway. Something like, let's say Psycho, which came out in 1960, came out two years after this, feels significantly older 
than something like a face in the crowd because the acting is still that kind of big broad you know hollywood system acting whereas the way that Ilya Kazan directed his films and the types of actors that he would work with it's it feels so much more youthful and it's it's crazy to me that like this it's only about two years but like something like this is uh, an older film than Psycho, but it feels so much more timeless. And that's someone who's I love Psycho. It's one of my. I'm just I'm just using it as a reference point and picking on it for that reason. Oh, I mean, I also feel like uh, part of the reason Psycho feels the way it does is because you're essentially working with like nascent like TV. Like, because I mean, he shot it with his the crew from Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. Presents, which is why it's in black and white, which to keep costs down and things like that. But I think the downside is that, like, TV was still, like, figuring out what TV is, although movies had kind of figured out what they were, like, decades prior to that. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's, like, this weird thing where it's, like, you have a a, a director who's been making films for almost, you know, a full 30 years at this point when he makes Psycho, (laughs) but then he has to, like, use like people who don't quite know how to do that (laughs) yeah which is why it's so small yeah and i think one thing that also just like if you look at like the talent that um facing the crowd had behind the camera so you had it was it was credited to two cinematographers one of them is uh henry straddling who had been making who had been a cinematographer cinematographer since the 20s and had worked on you know a streetcar named Desire, Johnny Guitar has been doing a lot of stuff. But then, what I find really interesting is the other cinematographer who was on it. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, Gain Rescher. Uh, this was his first film, so I assume it's uh, it was something to do with probably like an apprenticeship system in Hollywood. Uh, but would then go on to shoot like Elaine May's A New Leaf and would shoot Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. So like, they have some really good people behind the the glass making sure that this movie looks a certain way and looks good and i think that's also what separates this is it's not shot like you expect some of these old movies to be shot it's actually shot like a noir in a lot of ways where they're just using a lot of darkness and they're using a lot of um it looks to be motivated light sources um they're not just I think that's another thing that people have problem with when they watch old black and white movies is a lot of times their way of lighting these movies, they just blow the fuck out of the set and there wasn't always contrast or shadows or like, honestly, I sometimes struggle with old chamber pieces, uh, you know, like, um, old movies of people just sitting in a room talking to each other. Cause they're usually cinematically the most boring looking movies. Uh, I love the fact that, like and I hadn't even realized this until I'm just I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. In 1957, Harry Stradling, the the cinematographer, the lead cinematographer, the two films he had come out were A Face in the Crowd and The Pajama Game, which I think if I had to pick two very very different movies, that's 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 a pretty good that's a pretty good stretch from one to the other. Like that's just amazing hey you, you gotta go where the money's at and the pajama game they wanted them <laughs> yeah so as i said this was a first time watch for me and i 
was just completely enamored by this film from pretty early on and it's one of the rare cases where i don't usually give a five-star rating pretty pretty easily on my first time watching with this but it's like i just that's where my gut was telling me with this movie and it's a movie that i look forward to revisiting and it's like you said this is like a perfect film to show people when they say oh i don't like old movies i don't like black and white movies because it's it even though it's so indebted to the world of like country music, it feels like jazz in terms of the way that it's made. Well, and j- like, like it's it's kind of like the way this movie is made is almost like the way Lonesome Roads, you know, tells his stories, where it's just like you have something will get going and then it gets interrupted with this digression, and then you come back and you just kind of get it just steps you know as, as you go along um also like fantastic music worth noting yeah like it's i i i guess i never really um thought of andy griffith much of a sing- i'm sure he sang on the andy griffith show but like the way that he sings in this is just so like he it's just so raw yeah uh mama guitar which by the way was released as a single uh, in conjunction with this movie is like a, it's a full on like the, the, the song that Lee Remick's um, uh, character dances uh, does her uh, dance to I'm sorry Betty Lou does her dance to um, like got released as a single and it's a full on like it's a mid 50s rockabilly number and like it I don't know if Andy Andy Griffith is from North Carolina, so I assume he has some idea of like what this was. But like, man, he sings it like it's like it's like a lost sunside or something. It's great. Yeah, if I could, I'm sure it's not cheap. But if I could find a copy, you can pick them up for like ten bucks. Oh fuck! I gotta go on Discogs then and add it to my collection because that just, the music in this was just incredible. And one thing I. I We've talked a lot about um, uh, Andy Griffith's performance, and we have talked about um, Patricia Neal. But I mentioned before, like, Walter Matthau in this movie is just so good. Um, everyone in this movie is good, so that's that's kind of unfair to say. And it's also funny seeing young Walter Matthau, because he, he looks <laughs> simultaneously this exactly the same and younger at the same time. Um, he just as i watched him it just became probably my favorite character in this like i just i love the way that they portray like the job of the writer on this show <laughs> where they all like especially when they show the writer's room and all of them pretty much know that they're useless nothing that they are going to write is going to get used um and yeah if i had any complaint i just i honestly wish there would have been more with Walter Matthau and Patricia Neal because there was something just really endearing and charming to their performance where it kind of reminded me of the movie broadcast news have you ever seen Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. like i just kept getting uh flashes of broadcast news in this film where it's almost like this weird love triangle and this much larger personality who's kind of overtaking everything um and like i said just the speech that he gives um in the end of the film is just so poignant because it just feels like the world we live in now where you know lonesome is you know in this this pit of despair because he thought he thinks his entire career is over, and Walter Matthau's like no it's not, but here's how it's going to play out for you, your career's not over. 
And it's just kind of like sickening the way that star power works because he's right. People will forget. Yeah. Or people won't care. Yeah. And, you it's... know, he'll he'll spin it in such a way that people will be like, oh, he says what's on his mind, even if it's, you know, derogatory towards us. It's like you can still like he'll still, you know, book it like it'll do just fine. I mean, it's like <laughs> I can't count the number of like people where you're just like, oh, I don't know how they're ever going to work again after that. And I was like, oh, Chris Delia is booking a national tour. Um, uh, although it is somewhat heartening that every time he books a date, the the venue has to lock comments, <laughs> lock comments on their Facebook and Twitter feeds. <laughs> He just, yeah, he he just keeps getting jobs. Or the fact that, like, you have someone like Billy Graham, who was as popular as he was for as long as he was for the shit that he said. It's, it's like, people eventually forget. Yeah. And I think, like, because what this movie is ultimately about is the power of the media. And how, with enough time... People, anything can be changed. Anything can be done. It's all about perception, you know. And that's that's really driven home when he's working with that senator who, no yeah. give like is just really bored and no one cares about. But they bring in this guy. They bring in lonesome to try to get him some star power. Essentially, humanize him. Yeah, hilariously. And, and I think that that's what this movie is about. Is just you know, it's not even just the rise and fall of a person, but it's the power of the media. Because when Lonesome was in that drunk tank at the beginning of the movie, he was nobody. But all it just took was a catchy nickname and you know, just a little bit of exposure. And then you created this monster. And that's why I love that scene at the end where Patricia Neal's character is going back and forth with herself of whether or not she's going to turn on that live mic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the, you know, like in theory... I think if we we know how things work these days, like the person who does that, like their career is arguably more tanked than the person to whom I'm not going to say they did it, but like the person they allowed to, you know, hang themselves with their own rope, you know? Yeah. Like theoretically, if uh, Patricia Neal's character wouldn't have said something, that sound guy probably never work again. Mm hmm. You know, in the context of the movie, he probably wouldn't have a job anymore. Uh, and he still might not because I can see Lonesome just taking it out on him, even though he knows it wasn't him. But yeah, it's it, yeah. it's a movie that has like a whole bunch going on. And like, I mean, there I mean, you can discuss it uh, you know, in whatever way you want to, like whether it's just like a matter of like how the film's constructed, the acting, like the music, the the subject matter and i think that's what makes it like such a fascinating thing you can discuss it as a literary adaptation and the changes between the short story and the 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 film notably in the short story lonesome road roads uh like during that tantrum at the end uh like he doesn't like he trips and falls and breaks his neck what and dies that's a very different ending but like he doesn't that rant he does in you know it's just like that they spin it as he worked himself too hard and yeah like the end arguably the ending of the 
story is much darker. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, the, the film has a happy ending. <laughs> Which, In a way, I guess. I guess it's kind of, compared to him dying, I guess it's a happy ending. Um, and then one thing that I, I found myself just really gravitating towards is how they don't draw attention to this, these little details that kind of give you an idea of who Lonesome is. So at the beginning, you know, when he's bonding with Marsha for the first time, he tells a story about his parents. But then later on, you see a, a um, like a, a, a truck billboard drive past that's talking yeah. about like <laughs> his childhood with his parents was the was the best time of his life, or um, um, a little one that I just absolutely love when when we first meet Mel Walter Matthau's character and he comes in with the script and he's like, oh, I can't read. But then two scenes later, he's reading the copy verbatim in his hand. So he's just he, – I feel like he lies so much he can't even remember what he's lying about. I think it's – I think he is one of those people who just like – he uh, – uh, what is it? Uh, main actor syndrome? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that thing where it's like, no, you are the center of everything. And even before – he is the center of everything. He's the center of everything to him. And yeah. like he just it's almost like he's making reality fit the concept he has in his head. No, I think that's a that's a great way to view it. Um so I feel like it's we're kind of getting to the point of wrapping up a little bit unless there's something else you want to talk about. Uh I mean, get the Criterion version. Like yeah, it's, that's that's what I oh watched God, and look, even if you like even like I rewatched it via dvd and it still looks amazing i can only yeah, assume that, would, that blu-ray would melt my face that criterion edition is great if you're an audio nerd like myself while it's only got a, a mono soundtrack it's a really it has great fidelity to it so if you have a full you know audio system like i do it's i sometimes forgot that it was only coming out of one speaker just because of how big the sound is um, and then there's also just great features on there. There's a whole documentary about Ilya Kazan and Huack, and kind of how that influenced his career. There's a, uh, an interview on there with an Andy Griffith historian, which is funny to say out loud, <laughs> who talks about Andy Griffith before this film, how he got this film, and then afterwards. And then there's also... I think um, a piece on there with a Ilya Kazan historian. So it's definitely worth checking out. Um, As customary on this show, I think I told you a little bit about this in the email. We do something called the Thrill House Mm -hmm. moment where you choose. It's kind of the moment that kind of locked you in. Um, What did you have a Thrill House moment in this movie? Like the movie that just kind of knocked your hair back and was like, I'm into this. It is 100% the scene where he is talking to the women via the like and he is just like yes. he is just talking about like how hard it is and just like the saying the little things that you know like how do you know like and it's it's because a it's a great introduction to him it's a way of just showing that like he notices things like it's his eye and ear for detail that is what makes him so good at being a liar because he it's the little things that make a lie believable like it's just but it's also the fact 
that it's him doing that and it's every time he gets on a new medium he does that where he like does something that gets a bunch of people on his side he brings out a black woman to talk about how she lost her house and you see like all these people like oh it's about time and it's just like yeah in memphis yeah it's damn about time and all of that because it comes back at the end like you see all those same people that you met an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes prior turning on him and it's it's such like it's something that locked me in at the beginning but like when you get to by the time you get to the end of the film you're just like oh this is it's it's a it's one of the best callbacks i've ever seen Mm -hmm. for me the mine is very similar to that but it was it was after he went to memphis in his first television broadcast because what i love about that is i keep flip-flopping back and forth if his character it understands television production better than he he made them believe because you know when he first starts off he's kind of got that yokel look they put the straw in his mouth and he's like looking at the cameras and be like which one do i look into and he's just moving back and forth between them but then in that scene he starts to get control of what's going on you know, they don't necessarily tell him where to go. He's just going where he wants to, and he finds that if he puts himself in a certain place, he can have the entire audience behind. Like It's just like the way that he manipulates the cameras without supposedly knowing how television production works, I just thought was amazing. And then to a couple scenes later when they have the, you know, the was the Vitamix commercial, and it's like now that he has a full grasp on how this medium works... That was, for me, is what completely sold it. And it honestly reminded me, uh, this is a really weird comparison, but it's like this is the this is the dark version of Stanley Spagowski's Playhouse from UHF. <laughs> like, it's 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 the same thing, just done completely different. It's, yeah, within literally the span of five minutes, it goes from being just utter dreck and trash to just being like well this is can't miss television like literally it's somebody who is maybe they're not smart but like they're clever and they learn how things work they pick things up really fast and i think that's that's what it is it's like maybe he doesn't know but like you give him a little bit of knowledge and he can just be like oh i can i can i can work with this yeah and let's be real i I don't think i could definitely see lonesome roads letting someone from his audience drink from a fire hose Mm -hmm. (laughs) i can definitely see him doing that (laughs) i don't know like that was the first thought that came into my mind after those scenes when i was watching i was like this is like uhf but way darker No, I just I want somewhere in the world someone needs to program a double feature of UHF and a face in the crowd. <laughs> the trick is, is like which one do you show first? Um, I almost feel like you should show a face in the crowd first, just because I feel like you want to end on UHF. But who knows? Who knows? If if anyone out there listening wants to 
uh, let me program UHF based on the crowd double feature. Let me know. I'll make it work. Funnily enough, we actually did follow up a face in the crowd with uh, grumpy old men. Because Walter Matthau, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. It was just like, we need more Walter Matthau. Also, it was uh, like, Saturday was like the last really hot and awful day here. And mm. so it was like, let's go watch a movie that takes place in Minnesota in the winter. <laughs> All right, the first one is in the winter because yeah. the second one's in the summer. I, I, those movies were on so often when I was a kid. They're kind of interchange. It's just feels like one long movie. To yeah, me. it basically is. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, Nick, thank you very much for coming on the show f- with me and not talking about horror. <laughs> uh, well, it's kind of horror in its own way. Um, and coming on here and talking about a face in the crowd. I know we talked about um a Carnage Report a lot at the beginning, but is there anything else you'd like to plug before the show is over? Yeah, uh, you can find everything uh I write for the pitch at thepitchkc.com. I would that's where most of my writing output is, and if or if you like to read about movie soundtracks and film scores and composers and stuff like that, go to starburstmagazine.com or get a subscription it's a lovely print issue and i get to do a lot of fun stuff for the print edition that never make it online um i i honestly love soundtracks so that sounds right up my alley yeah it's uh starburst is the uk's longest running genre film like genre magazine it's been around since 1977 damn i don't know why they let me write for them but i will continue doing it until they tell me to stop Hell, that's how I feel about getting on the Cinepunks Network. Not too sure why you guys let me do it, but <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and then, um, so as of right now, there is a new episode of Carnage Report up on Sharksploitation. Um, and you have a new, another one coming up when? Uh, we have the... We, we are recording this on a Monday. The Thursday after this comes out, we will have our next episode, which is our 35th, uh, where we talk about Talk to Me. Um Oh, the new A24 joint. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, my, Julie has, by the time we got to the podcast, had seen it three times. <laughs> Damn. I haven't even seen it once yet. I don't know how she saw it three times. That's impressive. It's very intense. <laughs> um, and then I'll actually have you on again later on in the season, hopefully, with... Um, from 1977, we'll be talking about House. Yes. And that one will be an interesting intro to write because all those names are going to be very difficult for me. <laughs> I will be – I'm very excited to revisit it because I think the first time I saw it, I had been up for something like – like by the time the movie started, I had been up for like 24 – for almost 24 hours at that point. So, And I've never seen it, so – so that's why that's why I put it on this. Uh, it's my hope. So we're reco- we're supposed to be recording that in October. Um, I th- but the way my release schedule is going, I think I'll just miss Cineween. But we'll see. I might have to move some stuff around and make it work because that was the whole reason I chose it. But with the way that this has been working, because back before my co-host dropped out, um, we had the whole plan that we were going to every t- every other Tuesday we were going to record so we can get ahead. And then I had to take, like, once um, uh, he took some time off, I had to reevaluate the show, but I was still recording episodes, so I took a little break. So now I'm actually going to get to the point, like, by the time October, November roll around, some of those episodes might even just end up being in the next season, (laughs) because (laughs) there's no way I'm going to be able to get through all the episodes I've recorded uh, in this one season. But 
we'll get there we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there um but thank you again for coming on the show this has been a uh, a great conversation that's honestly the reason i keep doing this show is just it's it's so fun to just talk to people who really love movies and that's been the most rewarding thing about this season is people get to choose what movies they want to come on and talk <laughs> about so i'm not just being like hey random person you have to talk about a face in the crowd you chose this because there was something you wanted to say about it and i think that's why we had such a good conversation i agree thanks for having all me right. on man this has of been course. a real blast all right guys thank you for listening we'll talk to you soon and then an extra special thanks to fellow podcaster in front of the show, Austin Proctor, who actually had edited this episode. So if you want to support Austin Proctor and everything he does, be sure to check out the Fright Mares podcast. I am a, a occasional co-host on that show, but he does one of my favorite podcasts about the horror genre, and it should be one of your favorite podcasts, too. So thanks a lot for Austin Proctor for editing this episode. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.